Welcome to Island Idols. I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu, and you are... Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta, and this is a podcast about books and life. Everyone, welcome back to Island Idols. We need to make a little correction to the introduction you just heard, because uh, I am calling in from Atlanta... And Dad, you are calling in from Atlanta. I'm not calling in from Atlanta. I'm right here next to you in your lovely, spacious office at the Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Here we are. And that is uh, pretty fun. We've done uh, 10 episodes uh, from quite a distance. You came out to Florida to visit your sister. And uh, and here you are with the Menikoff clan in Atlanta. Right. There was a... It's come, quite a trip. It's been a trip from Honolulu to Portland, Portland to Boca Raton, Boca Raton to Florida. I'm not sure this is exactly what a travel agency would set up as an itinerary, but it serves uh, our purposes. I'm very glad to be here. And of course, this is odd to be broadcasting this way because instead of looking at you at the computer, I'm staring at you right next to me at, at your desk. It is a little strange, but it's good. It's a good strange. Yeah, well, let's see how it works out. I mean, uh, if I have to think about my responses and stare at you next to me, it's one thing to stare at you at across a, from 3,000, 5,000 miles away, but from uh, less than a foot, it's a different story. Well, I was reminded as we were talking last night in my kitchen about why I wanted uh, us to start the podcast, because even in a short amount of time, We've had some good in-depth conversations about uh, writing and about, we talked last night about postmodernism and literature. And these are just fun conversations to have with you. And uh, But you're a great source, a re- great resource, and you're a great conversationalist, and you ask telling questions, and you make very incisive comments. So I'm always a little bit, I always find it a little humbling to have to keep up with you. Well, try humbling. You're coming to visit us at uh, at the church tomorrow night when I'm speaking on providence and suffering. And usually I have, usually, not always, but a crowd of people who are in, in a large-scale agreement with the things I'm going to say. And so it's a little intimidating for me to teach tomorrow, recognizing that you're going to be proud of me, but not in agreement with everything I say. Well, that's all right. Disagreements make for a healthy and an entertaining and a challenging uh, experience. This is true. Well, tonight uh, we want to talk about writing. So you and I decided that we would take a step back, not talk about reading, but we want to talk about the art of writing. And perhaps you could start us off by reminding us of that Francis Bacon quote, that you mentioned uh, a few podcasts ago, a few episodes ago. Okay, that was uh, Francis Bacon, who's, uh, the quote is, it's always been, uh, it's always stayed in my mind, and I've used it in my, <clears throat> in my classes on many different occasions. Uh, Reading maketh a full man, conversation a ready man, and writing an exact man. And the uh, the reason I've always uh, I've always uh, relied on that and tried to promote it is because it suggests 
the best part of a liberal education and critical thinking. You read to acquire knowledge, to broaden your mind. You converse with others in order to sharpen uh, your thinking. But writing is the thing that makes it precise. Because in writing, you haven't got the, you, you don't have the luxury of hemming and hawing and agreeing and thinking and writing. It has to be exact. There's nobody else listening. There's just a pen, paper, and sentences. And the sentences are what you make, and the sentences are what, what survive. So do you consider yourself a writer? Yes, of course I consider myself a writer. But, you know, writer, you know, has come to, to mean different things in different times in, in, you know, my own, my own life, my own experience. Professors don't often think of themselves as writers, although professors often always write, they publish, but they think of themselves as people who are acquiring knowledge and transmitting knowledge. Writers are in my view, in my, in my, under, in, for my own understanding, writers are people who make the practice of writing something of a craft and at its best, something of an art. And professors don't usually think of themselves that way, but I have to say, I think of myself that way. When did you first think of yourself that way? Or when did you first identify yourself as a, as a writer? Was it very early on? Was it later in your career when you had this? sense of that self-awareness that, that you were, in fact, a, a writer? Well, I always spent a lot of time with my scholarship, with the writing of my scholarship. I labored over it more than I think many do. The problem was, and I think we talked about this early on in the uh, maybe the second episode, the problem is that uh, ac- you know universities and academics don't necessarily spend a, a lot of, uh, give a lot of credence to good writing. So spending the time polishing my prose did not necessarily promote my career. I mean, I could have gotten the same thing with much less, you know, with a more bland, with a blander or much less, uh, you know, uh, challenging or invigorating prose. But I always wanted to do that. I don't know why. It's because I always paid attention to what I was, what I was saying and how I said it. In the course of my career, as I, as I developed, worked on my books on Stevenson, I realized that no matter what, the, what I had discovered, I intended to spend, I spent a lot of time conveying it as best I could in the best prose I was able to manage. By the time I came to writing my, my last book, uh, David Balfour, a long introduction to that edition of uh, Stevenson's great novel, the Lonely Trials of David Balfour, I realized that scholarly writing could also be creative. Mm-hmm. Although the material I was presenting was was scholarship, that is, I was drawing on historical materials and I was conveying what I believed to be the, you know, the, uh, the details of Stevenson's, you know, composition and creation of his great novel. How I presented that was really a creative act. And I started to see myself as a creative writer, albeit within the confines of a scholarly Mm -hmm. medium. Now, if I would say to people, well, you know, my scholarship can be creative. Most of them would look at me with, you know, you know, rolled eyes. But I really believed that. And when I finally put aside my last Stevenson book and turned to writing a memoir, 
which of course most people would say, well, that's creative mm-hmm. writing. I realized that what I had always been doing was uh, paying attention to the art of writing. And at the end, I come to see myself as an artist. When I wrote my dissertation, which ended up being published, Politics and Piety, I certainly wasn't thinking that I was trying to be a a good writer. I didn't want to be a bad writer, but I suppose I wanted to be clear. I wasn't trying to be a good writer. I was trying to get it done. I do remember one one reviewer commented uh, by way of commendation of the book that every paragraph had a topic sentence. And uh, I thought that was a little bit of a a nice but odd compliment. I thought paragraphs were supposed to have topic sentences. Well, I don't particularly like topic sentences, but uh, there are different ways of writing paragraphs. Sometimes it's topic sentence could come at the end of the paragraph, and sometimes the topic sentence could be implicit in the paragraph. So well, I think when you're trying to please a supervisor, you just yes, want to have yes. no 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 room for any controversy. Yes, absolutely. Did you ever take a class on on writing? No, I never did. Did you ever teach writing? Well, of course, you teach writing as a, an English professor. You teach writing all the time because if you're not teaching freshman composition, even if you're teaching an upper division course, you're getting papers, term papers submitted, and you're correcting them. And correcting them is a, is a form of writing, teaching writing. You can't not teach writing as, a, as a, an English professor. But I never taught creative writing. I never taught a course solely devoted to uh, writing. Having graded so many papers over the course of your career, um, did you see any, any patterns in students' papers, any patterns of problems, any patterns of things that you would really commend students for? I mean, what was their writing like? That's a, that's a very it's a broad question. It's a broad question. That. It's a good question. And, and my answer is going to be off the, off the top of my head. What I can say is that there has been a change in writing over the course of, of my career. I mean, students are not as well prepared when they come to college as, uh, say, my generation was. And uh, the, the, the kind of problems they have, just syntactical problems, just grammatical problems, are very, very significant. And, of course, good writers, good students who, who uh, write well, often it's, a pro- it's a, often it's a product of their own intentions, their own desire mm-hmm. to be able to write well, and they, they practice over and over again. The majority, though, need, real, need training in just making sentences clear and in building paragraphs. I mean, one of the things I always found interesting about, you know, writing in, in, in freshman composition, you know, students are always taught to have, you know, have topic sentences and the kind of, the kind of instruction they're given is very, is very, um, I don't know, it's not so juvenile. It's very minimal. You know, they, they're simply supposed, they don't learn anything. Writing is a process of learning. And you often, you know, you often hear experienced writers say, I don't know what I'm going to say until I write it. And I agree with that because writing is a process of discovery. And if you're given too many formulas about how to write, you don't have that sense of discovery that comes with, with writing. Uh, in my own writing, I tend to write, I, I tend to do something that people comment on, usually negatively. I write long paragraphs. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know why that is, but I do. Partly because these paragraphs become sort of mini essays in themselves, and I don't like to break them up. But of course, readers today are trained to read quick, short paragraphs. And when something gets too long, their eyes glaze over before they even read it. And so, you know, they sort of bail. But uh, I've been told constantly, cut my paragraphs, but sometimes I just don't want to. So interestingly, I was talking to my uh, daughter, Natalie, your granddaughter today, and she just wrote a rough draft of a paper about the Odyssey. And I think the assignment, the prompt was something like, you know, why is the Odyssey still read today? And clearly the teacher is trying to get her to engage with the merit of the the narrative, perhaps engage somewhat with the style of the prose. And Natalie commented uh, just how hard it is. And she said, you know, she said, I'd much rather have a question that has a a yes or no answer or a black and white answer. So here is a a teenager uh, sort of beginning what I hope will be a life of writing in some sense, but she's really challenged by the the open-ended nature of, of writing. You were uh, a literature professor and you're assigning papers of, of a similar ilk where students probably didn't know exactly where to go for the content of their essays. How did you encourage a student to find an idea? That's an excellent question. And it, it you know, it, it forces me to think back on my, you know, the kinds of uh, assignments I, uh, I presented to students. Students much preferred you to give them a topic. Give, them, give me a topic and I'll go and try to answer it. Mm-hmm. But when I would say, you know, read this novel and find something to write about, that was almost, you know, not only challenging, it was upsetting to them. And I said, you know, if you have a topic, basically you've got the answer before you start. Write about, you know, the uh, the conflicts between Romeo and Juliet and the love tri- mm-hmm. the, the love conflicts. And so- you, you're giving them the subject and you're telling them in a way to, how to go about it. Mm-hmm. If you say the read the Romeo and Juliet, then come up with the topic. That is very difficult. And I used to do that not because I wanted to make their life difficult, but because this is the only way you discover something. You have to read the play then by yourself. And as you're reading it, you have to pay attention. You have to make notes on things that strike you. And doing a term paper is a bit of an empirical exercise And an empirical exercise means you have to get information. And the information they were getting was the materials from the text. Right. If I gave them the topics and if I gave them the questions, they weren't looking for the material. They were looking for answers to the questions and discovering something. And when a a student did actually follow that process, many of them didn't. Many of them Mm -hmm. reverted to what they knew and still went ahead with their topics and trying to demonstrate the uh, how they how they came about you know writing about them but when the student actually did that they you often came up with the paper that was original and for them was a you know involved the sense of discovery they learned something now 
I'm not, whether you can do that on a mass scale, I'm not sure. It, it doesn't always work. And it runs against, in my experience, in my, my teaching career, it ran against what most students were doing in other courses. So they found it very, very difficult. Well, and I, I think back to that, that quote, that Bacon quote, reading makes a full man or a full woman. I, I don't know exactly what he means by that, but I do understand the experience of reading in such a way that that you are, you are filled up. You've read something so carefully that it's become a part of you and you, you, you want to talk about it. And if you're full, well, then you've got something to give. Maybe you've got something to say. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's hard to be a student because you've got all these tasks to accomplish. So to actually do the hard work of just stopping and reading carefully before you're worrying about what you have to say, that's not, that's not easy to do. No. And it's also more time consuming. And I understood, I understood why students resisted, but still it was my, my belief that this was the only way you could learn something. I mean, otherwise you were, students were tended to put out the uh, rote papers. I mean, what they presented at the end was what they knew before they started. You know, the thing about having a topic sentence almost tells you what, what tells you what the point of the whole writing uh, exercise is. And you just simply go out. It's like checking boxes almost. I don't want to make, make it sound, you know, that, that's sim- that simplistic or formulaic or formulaic, but without a topic sentence and without even a theme, you're really up the creek without a paddle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's very hard. And given the time constraints on students, it's perfectly understandable that many of them didn't want to do it. But as I say, my experience is the ones that did follow that path often produced something that they were very proud of. I remember when uh, I was a young preacher and there would be many Saturday nights where I would be up late at night looking at a blank computer screen because I just didn't know what I wanted to say. And for me, I think part of the problem was I wanted to finish the product. Now, this the product in this case would be a sermon, a, a piece of writing for the ear. So I would write manuscripts. Not every preacher uses manuscripts, but I would basically prepare a manuscript. And I'd want to get that manuscript done. And so I'd start writing. And I understand what you're saying about writing as a process, but if you if you need to present a sermon on Sunday, you don't have two weeks to sort of go through this process. Uh, and so that was a struggle, especially when I was younger and wasn't careful to think through an outline before I started writing. But I wonder what you think about this. I'd say about five or six years ago, I did something I'd never done before. And that is before I ever went to a, a computer screen and stared at a Word document, I actually went and got an eight and a half by 11, a pad of paper, and I got a mechanical pencil. And after all my study and my outline, I would sit down with a pencil and I would write out my sermon. So my essay, right? And um, what I found was that I can type very quickly. You know, I learned how to type in junior high school and I could type really quickly. I could type, I thought, faster than I could think. The pencil slowed me down. And uh, once I started doing that, I, I do that every single time now. 
And then later on, I came across an article, I think in the Atlantic, where someone actually said there's something about looking at a computer screen where when you start typing, it looks like a finished product. It looks like what you would see on in a book. And uh, and that can be daunting. And uh, the old-fashioned paper and pen, it just has a way of slowing you down. Any thoughts about that maybe strange well, I mean, uh, experience no, I have? I think that's that, I think that's very interesting. I mean, you're, first, take the latter part first about the, the uh, when word processing first came out, you know, and you went on to the computer and you start typing and you type pages and then you print them out. It looks like printed copy. I mean, it may writing, the writing might be atrocious, but you don't know that because you're on the page. In the old days, it looks like it's finished. Mm-hmm. In the old days, when I was typing, you know, you type a page or two pages and in the midst of it, you know, you're crossing out and, you know, you realize you've got a, a working, a working product mm-hmm. there. With regard to the pencil and the paper, I think there is there is a connection between, you know, that, that you, I, I don't know what the connection is. I'm not going to get mystical here, but I have very often, very often I use pencil and paper. I don't type in the whole manuscript like that. Right. But I will, when I, for example, if I want to write a conclusion to a book and uh, I'm not going to necessarily go to the computer, I'm going to take out a pad of paper and a pencil and start scrolling away. And, uh, it's very, it's very different. And, uh, there is, there is a connection between the, the way the mind moves the pencil and the way the pencil moves over the paper that I believe is still effective for writing. Now, I mean, I compose on a computer. There's no question about that. You know, there's a funny thing somebody once said about, uh, about writers is that every day they face failure. You open up the computer and there's a blank screen. And, uh, you have to go forward with that. That's one of the aspects of writing that, uh, I think is difficult. Maybe this is in the, in the level of creative writing, but it's certainly, but all writers, even people who are writing memorandums, you know, they open up their, uh, their email and they have to write an answer and then they have to stop and think. That's why, you know, that's, that's one of the things they, the English department started promoting to their majors. They said, well, it's okay to be an English major because wherever, whatever you go to, wherever you go to get a job, everybody wants people who can write and communicate. So you've got that skill. So don't worry about what you're going to do with an English degree. Oh, one of the, uh, one of the great skills that people valued when I worked in the United States Senate was in fact the ability to write a memo. <laughs> I mean, you needed to take an issue and you needed to summarize it in one page. Because the senator did not want a two-page memo. And uh, and not only did you learn the art of writing, but then you learned the art of communicating because often he didn't want to read the memo. You had to be able to now communicate verbally. And uh, that was a wonderful, if not disconcerting, experience. For all those listening who may have uh, children or may be undergraduates themselves, uh, this is the virtue of, you know, an English degree, a history degree, a philosophy degree. I mean, you're not at a loss. You learn to write and you learn to think and you learn to, com- you learn to compress your thoughts. Uh, it's a value. But, uh, this is uh, another maybe strange question, but I still am interested in how you would answer it. I'm just going to go ahead and, and ask it this way. Which, which is more important, having something to say or being a skilled writer? 
That's a very subtle question, actually, because, you know, writers have often, there are many writers who've been accused of having a lot of style, but no substance. Okay. And uh, I remember getting often in my early, in my undergraduate days, a couple of classes, you know, it was art history in particular. I wrote about this in the book. Like when I got a good grade on the paper, the instructor said, I'm not sure how much you know about art, but I'm, or whether I've been taken by the writing. So oh, really? people, people can be seduced by the writing and then question whether there's any substance behind it. Now the question of well, what- Well, can I just say, as you say that, I hope you don't, don't lose your thought, but I have been reading Tender is the Night by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And, uh, I, I want to say I personally don't find it as compelling as, as Henry James or even D.H. Lawrence, although I have some other issues with D.H. Lawrence, but I haven't met anyone's writing where a, a sentence doesn't take me away the way Fitzgerald's sentence. So I've got lots of questions about what's going on, but sometimes he just writes a sentence that just makes me in awe of the writing. Well, of course, you're speaking to someone who is, uh, you know, a devoted, fan. devoted, fan. devoted reader of Fitzgerald. And what you say is absolutely true. He's probably one of the most lyrical writers in American literature. Uh, you know, Fitzgerald's sentences are just super. I mean, this is why Gatsby remains, you know, on the list of the most read books in, in high school and in college. But we still have to get back to the question of can there be good writing? Can there be uh, you know, substantive good writing without good content, or, or or can there be good content without good writing? Well, yes, but ultimately, I think there can't be a great book without great writing. Now, there can be great books that take a while before you discover the writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a good example here is Theodore Dreiser. Theodore Dreiser is not known or has ever been extolled as a ma- as a serious stylist. But, and, uh, you know, some people have said you have to read a hundred pages in the American, in an American tragedy before you discover what a great book it is. So some writers are clumsier than others. In a novel, you don't have to be a great stylist to have a great novel. Although I, I doubt that any really great novel is not, is absent right. of style. You can be a skillful writer without a lot of substance, but I think that I think that's just on the surface. I think that uh, that is not. I don't think a skillful writer. I don't think uh, you know a dilettante. You know, is not going to survive. It doesn't really survive the test of time. Well, I certainly don't. I, I wasn't intending of uh, accusing Fitzgerald of not you know having a good story. Hmm behind his good sentence. But let me, let me ask the question in a, in a creative way to try and get you to, to, to muse a little bit about that idea. And so the, the question is this, is good writing more like a clear window or a gilded frame? So in other words, would you say good writing is the kind of writing where the reader doesn't really pay attention to the writing it's almost like the writing becomes invisible because through the prose he's made or she's made the idea just almost like you could touch it. Or is good writing more like a gilded frame where there's this idea, but you just can't take your eyes off of the, 
the frame around it is just so beautiful. That's that's a beaut that that's a marvelous image and a marvelous you know contrast. I'm not sure how I can respond to that. I think a lot of good writing doesn't call attention to itself. And, you know, we get back to some of the stories we've talked about in the past on these, on these sessions about popular writing. Mm. A lot of popular writers who I think are very good are easily overlooked because they're so readable that people don't realize that that readability is actually a stylistic and a technical achievement. I mean, I, I used Steinbeck in the past. I could use many others that like, you know, like Somerset Maugham or Erwin Shaw, who are very realistic writers and who are easily read, but, and are often thought not to have any style. The gilded frame image is, is a more complicated one. I mean, if the writing is so, is so, uh, tortured or so opaque, you know, who wants to get through it? I myself tend towards the first model. I tend towards the plainer, you know, uh, limpid style. I like the writers who are clear mm-hmm. and who are, e- who are, who are accessible. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm a great admirer of late Henry James, who is often been called Baroque. Mm-hmm. So the, the point is, I would, I guess a larger point I would make is there's no real formula. You know, Henry James said every book has to be dealt with on its own terms. Every writer has to be dealt with on his or her own terms. You have to find what it is that they are trying to do. A writer like Edith Wharton is as brilliant in many ways as Henry James. Not as difficult as late Henry James, but she has her own style and she is clear and she is. Well, I've heard counsel, you know, such as, Never pick a word that the reader might have a hard time understanding if there is a a simpler word that, you know, is just as suitable. And so that would be an example of certainly the a window you can see right through it. But sometimes the challenging word might force a reader to open up a dictionary. And who's going to stop and open up a dictionary? I get that. But sometimes that difficult word is going to draw a reader into something or perhaps more accurately the the more difficult world word is more carefully explaining what the author wants explained it's just more precise uh look we agree believe it or not we actually agree on this and uh, i i i believe that you should not go out searching for a $25 word when something simpler will suffice and sometimes looking for even even in using uh, a, a, a foreign expression, which is commonly known. I sometimes have found myself. I found I'd use a I'd use a French expression. I don't speak French, but it's a common expression for English readers. And yet, I'll then somehow delete it and substitute an English expression that is even more common because the French expression then suddenly holds up the sense that maybe you're being a little pretentious. Maybe you're being, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to show off your knowledge of another language. But sometimes a word that is not obvious serves a purpose. 
Dad, a lot of people who are listening to Island Idols are, uh, they're not academics necessarily. Uh, they're not professional writers. I know there's homemakers who listen to the podcast. And I'm curious, do you think, is everyone a writer? No. That's a very quick response, but I have a, that might this, be your quickest response in the history of this short-lived podcast, and that's because it, it hits a nerve. I, I remember, you know, when I've done book events at stores, you know, very good scenes, and I've had good, you know, good good experiences. Invariably, people will come up after and say, "Well, I have a story, and you know, I really could, I really want to want to tell that story, and I have a book to write." Everybody has a story and everybody thinks they have a, they can tell that story. But just because we have stories and, and their stories may be even more interesting than your story doesn't mean they're writers. Writing is not something that, you know, people can do. It's a craft and it's an art. And, you know, you can spend time learning how to do it and then you can get better at it. But just because you know how to type on a computer doesn't make you a writer. I want to talk in another episode about uh, what you can do to get better at that higher level, if there's anything, because you, you say it's a craft, well, a craft can be worked on, but clearly some people are just more talented, I would say more gifted than others. Scott Fitzgerald. But at the same time, I mean, I know people who really struggle to write a letter. It's not that they're not, it's not that they're uneducated. They could have more than one degree, but it actually brings them a little bit of anxiety to sit down and just write a couple of paragraphs to a friend. Um, and so when I say is everyone a writer at one level, I, I just mean that whether it's a blog post, which I'm not saying everyone should blog, or whether it's a tweet, whether it's a letter to a friend, you know, I mean, we just live in a culture where people communicate. We still communicate with words and some people really struggle to do that, even at the most basic level. And again, I don't think it's necessarily for lack of an education. Uh, any any counsel for someone who, uh, who just struggles to just come up with uh, two or three lines of encouragement to a friend? Well, I don't know the... the, the I don't know what the answer to this is. I don't, I don't know what really what kind of response I can make. I mean, people should be able to communicate. They should be able to write a letter. They should be able to write syntactically. Many people can't. You don't think it's a lack of education, but it has something to do with the education that was received. They didn't spend enough time writing. They didn't have people, teachers, you know, lording it over them with a stick and saying, you know, that's not grammatical, right. Well, you need to punctuate. And the standards are so lax and that people who are then want to communicate feel ang- feel stress or feel some anxiety, and they get caught up in that. And then they don't want to spend the time trying to write, you know, right. four or five good sentences. Mm-hmm. And writing is writing is writing good sentences. Over the years... What helped you most substantially improve as a writer? And let's take practice off the table. Because just when you do something again and again and again, I mean, unless you're doing it wrong, wrongly, you're going you're gonna to get better at it. That's right. But other than that, can you point to anything that really substantially helped you? You said you never took a writing class yourself. I, you know, I'm actually at a loss. 
I mean, I do think you, you know, practices really helps. I do think guidance from people who know how to write helps. I think you can learn some things from some composition books. I mean, you know, the standard, you know, strunk and white elements of style mm-hmm. has always been a good guide. Um, you can learn things from books that will tell you how to minimize obvious uh, lapses in writing and how to make writing, you know, less of a, less of a, a chore and less of a, a, of a burden and something actually pleasurable. It'd be nice to write a letter home to your mother who's 3,000 miles away from you and feel that you can express yourself right. clearly, simply, and with affection and not worry that you're sounding like a bore. Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't be so hard to do. Uh, I think if people got over the, the stress of it and just paid a little attention and thought, gave some thought to what they were doing and, you know, read just some simple guidebooks and just some simple books about how to help them go about it, it wouldn't be so impossible. That doesn't make you a creative writer, but it makes you an able and a sensitive communicator. I know that for me, reading has helped a great deal. So I remember reading, uh, actually it was a children's book. And the author wrote, he, he wrote something like, and anger crawled out of her heart. And I remember stopping and thinking, well, that's an interesting way of saying that. I mean, he personified anger. And I, I began to think about all the other things that could crawl out of one's heart. And I think in various different ways, I've sort of copied that phrase. He just, he planted an idea in my mind of a way to communicate. It's a very small way to make a sentence a little bit more engaging. You know, so uh, you could say, you know, love popped out of my veins. It's a practical little way that a line in one book, I decided to be something of a copycat. You're uh, channeling Robert Louis Stevenson. Stevenson said, if you want to write, you have to read. And he said he read everything. He played the sedulous ape. That's his phrase, meaning he just copied. He read everybody and he copied them. He didn't copy them literally, mm-hmm. but I mean, he tried to learn from, you know, from what he was reading. And that's, that's the model. I mean, of course, the more you read, the better you're going to be as a writer because your vocabulary is going to improve. Your sense of distinctions between good and bad writing is going to uh, increase. And uh, I think that's that's probably the best thing anybody can say. And you'll find all good writers or all serious writers have always been readers from the time they were very young. So this episode, which uh, we're about to wrap up, is called The Art of Writing. Boy, I really feel like we've just scratched the surface. I mean, other things that I'd be so interested in asking you questions about are some of the struggles you've had writing what you've done when you've struggled, how you've grown as a writer. And, um, and I've got some stories along those lines that I'd love to, to, to say as well. But this has been a great start, Dad. So it's good to see you uh, in person here in Atlanta. And, um, and uh, we'll keep the conversation going. Well, it's great to be here, Aaron. <laughs>